Welcome to Daughters of Lorraine, a podcast from your friendly neighborhood Black feminists, exploring the legacies, present, and futures of Black theater. We are your hosts, Leticia Ridley and Jordan Ely. On this podcast produced for HowlRound Theater Commons, a free and open platform for theater makers worldwide, we discuss Black theater history, conduct interviews with local and national Black theater artists, scholars, and practitioners, and discuss plays by Black playwrights that have our minds buzzing. Today's episode of Daughters of Lorraine contains mentions of sexual violence, bodily harm, and language around abortion care. We encourage you all to proceed with caution when engaging with this episode and to seek out resources on mental wellness and care for those who may need it. Thank you so much. Love, Leticia and Jordan. A draft decision was leaked in early May showing the public that there was plans for the United States Supreme Court to overturn Roe v. Wade a landmark court decision that provided federal protections for abortion care nationwide. Reproductive justice activists, feminists, and other advocates were rightfully incensed and terrified. The overturning of Roe would end access for millions of Americans seeking reproductive health care and set back the efforts of feminist activism decades. The draft decision came following years of turmoil on the front of reproductive justice, after the election of Donald Trump to the U.S. presidency and the subsequent appointment of extremely right-leaning Supreme Court justices, including Brett Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett. And on June 24, 2022, our worst fears were confirmed. In a 6-3 decision, the Supreme Court had overturned Roe v. Wade and ended federal protections for abortions. As devastating as this news was for all birthing people, many Black feminists pointed out the disproportionate effect that this decision will have on Black people in particular, with many of the states who have currently and or are poised to ban or severely restrict abortion rights located in the South, where the majority of Black Americans live, the astronomically high Black maternal mortality rate, and the exorbitant financial costs of obtaining an abortion that will make it virtually inaccessible for low-income and working-class folks, reproductive justice is a Black feminist issue. So why is it that Black women, girls, femmes, and AFAP people are virtually invisible in the national and international conversation regarding reproductive rights and freedoms? With increased visibility on reproductive justice and freedom through the media, we decided to take a look at how the ongoing fight for bodily autonomy is represented in Black theater. We look to plays by Black women playwrights and consider what it asks us to question regarding bodily freedoms and Black liberation. Welcome back to another episode of Daughters of Lorraine. I'm Leticia Ridley. And I am Jordan Ely. Today we have a really important critical conversation, timely conversation around Black reproductive freedom and specifically as it relates to Black theater. This has been a long tradition within Black theater, Jordan, as we were doing research for this episode and really thinking about the plays and dramas that, you know, we are familiar with, reproductive freedom has been a constant within Black theater conversations. Yeah, well, honestly, the the episode obviously is, is very in tune with the national conversation, unfortunately, as we mentioned earlier, you know, around the overturning of Roe v. Wade. And I remember when we were having this conversation about, you know, what was happening in terms of reproductive justice and freedom in the United States, we both kind of wondered, like, why isn't there more discussion around reproductive justice within theater in general, but specifically within Black theater? I remember part of that interest of came from me specifically in thinking about where even in media, I mean, giving films and television, even literature, how are women of color represented in seeking things like abortions or even conversations around other 
forms of reproductive choice, such as birth control or, or any sort of contraception. That was really kind of the impetus for us doing this episode, right, is kind of on a represent, like a purely representational level, how are women of color entering into the conversation? And then specifically, how are black women entering the conversation? There's often a sort of crisis, right, in the way that um, seeking abortion care is represented. And so I think that these plays have varying, you know, degrees of how they treat people who, who need reproductive um, health care. Yeah, definitely. And I know when we were thinking about this episode and including this in our season, right, we did it prior to knowing that one Roe v. Wade was actually officially under under attack with the sort of leaked document. But then in the course of recording our season, we also were set to record this episode the week that Roe v. Wade was overturned officially. And you know, if you if you are a follower of our podcast, you may have heard our sort of preview to our next episode. We were like, we're going to talk about Black reproductive freedom. And because of, one, both the impact uh, of the overturning of Roe v. Wade on us both individually and wanting to make sure we can talk about it, not as a, you know, potential, but actually a live reality, we decided to postpone the episode. So here we are now with still very heavy hearts, thinking about you know, reproductive freedom, uh, abortion care, and literally how our bodies and bodies of, you know, birthing people are under attack all across the United States. So, you know, when we when we were we were setting up this conversation, we wanted to make sure that we thought about who were our interlocutors? Who are we being informed by? And as you all know, this is a black feminist podcast. So, you know, some names that we mentioned, uh, you will probably be familiar with if you listen to our podcast, starting with the Koambahi River Collective, who identifies in their, you know, really famous statement, abortion rights as a significant part of the Black feminist movement. Absolutely, because oftentimes Black women get left out of this conversation around reproductive justice and reproductive health care and reproductive freedom. And so to go back to that document, as you said, Leticia, like, that is a part of Black feminist politics is the right to the, the right to your choices around your body. And and that includes the right to seek abortion. And I, we know that there's a very complicated history around around reproductive, you know, health care. And, you know, we'll talk about that when we get to some of the texts that we're discussing. Um, but one thing that we are both in tune with is the idea of reproductive justice as a Black feminist framework. So Loretta Ross, who is a, a absolute titan of reproductive justice movement in the United States, has helped us to see the freedom, right, that comes with the, the reproductive justice framework. And part of that is not just about seeking abortions, which obviously that is a huge part of the conversation around reproductive freedom, but it's more so about the right in general to um, have children when and how you choose to, and the right to not <laughs> have cho- children when and how you choose to, along with a lot of other things. So for me, looking at the plays we're going to look at is about generally, how do we treat bodily autonomy? How do we have the conversation around what it means both to be able to choose what happens to your body and also the access, right, to choose what happens to your body? So yeah, let's like, Let's go ahead and, and get into it. One of the plays that we, we won't get into in depth in this episode, but one of the plays that sparked this conversation between us, Leticia, is one that I feel like is a recurring <laughs> character on this podcast, which is Rachel by Angelina Well Um, I don't know if you wanted to like quickly mention some things that we were, were talking about with, when it came to that play uh, before we get into depth into the, the ones we really want to focus on for the episode. Yeah, so um, Angelina Well Grimke, Rachel, is is a play that we celebrate on Daughters of Lorraine. We've talked about it a few times in multiple episodes, starting with uh, when we had our episode on lynching dramas. Specifically as it pertains to this episode, 
Rachel also had a backlash to it. If you recall, Rachel decides that she does not want to have children, not because she does not desire to be a mother, but because the anti-blackness and sort of her awareness about sort of how anti-blackness infringes on the black family and black home, she decides that it is better not to bring children into that environment. So some, some of the criticisms of the play was that they considered Angelina Wilm Grimke and Rachel specifically her choice as race suicide, her choice to not have kids. And in that in in the play, Grimke uses this phrase that I thought is really compelling with Rachel. Rachel talks about killing is kinder. And she's in particular pertaining to the sort of some flowers that she gets from one of her suitors who wants to marry her and she takes the flowers and she like rips it and stomps it um and he comes back and sees this and he asks you know why did you kill the flowers and she said killing is kinder and I thought that was such a great parallel to sort of thinking about why Rachel decides not to want kids and I think it's one solidifies the importance of this reproductive freedom conversation that we're having today and also a great starting point to think about how it reverberates across the other plays that we're going to talk about today. Absolutely and also Angelina Wild Grimke as we noted in the lynching dramas episode um, was a queer woman and you know Rachel has a lot of perspectives in it that can be read as queer Um, and one of those choices is for Rachel to not embark on this sort of normative life around family and motherhood. She decides not to biologically reproduce, but she is definitely mothering and parenting in many, many different ways. You know, I kind of look at that as, as foreshadowing how the, the, the fight for reproductive justice is, was aided heavily by, by lesbian and queer women throughout history. And, and so it's, it's one of those, I think, like landmark plays in general, um, but specifically around the, the conversation around bodily autonomy um, within Black theater, especially by Black women playwrights. So one of the plays we really want to get into today is They That Sit in Darkness by Mary Burrell, right? And Mary Burrell is actually one of Angelina Weld Grimke's contemporaries, right? Um, the Solitesia. Tell us a little bit about the day that sit in darkness. So they that sit in darkness is a one act play written in 1919 that focuses on the difficulties faced by working class black families, specifically the Jasper family who have numerous children. And it really follows the story of Melinda Jasper, who is the matriarch of the family. She had has had 10 kids, eight that are living, two that had died. And her husband is often working so he really can't help around the house because there is a level of um because he needs to you know work to make money so that they can afford things but this is a working class poor family and essentially throughout the play Burrell is exploring how uh women's access to reproductive rights is closely entangled with sort of social systems such as welfare and how poor folks are not given access to reproductive freedom and that how that it continues sort of a sort of generational uh, cycle of staying in poverty. Um, Melinda Jasper has a daughter who is 16, I believe in the play, sorry, 17 in the play. And, you know, this is sort of the culminating moment before she's supposed to head off to, to Tuskegee and really disrupt the cycle of poverty for the family. Burrell, we get this very beautiful moment from Burrell while Lindy, the daughter, is discussing with her other siblings, like, I'm going to get this degree, I'm going to come back, I'm going to become a teacher, I'm going to buy you these clothes and new books, and we're going to have food, and I'll be able to help it so so uh, dad can come home early so he can have dinner with us and spend more time, right? So we sort of see this sort of hope, this, ed- this way that education will get him out. But... By the end of the play, spoiler alert, it's a really old play, so you should. <laughs> I feel like I'm not spoiling anything. Um, I am spoiling something. But by the end of the play, the mother, the matriarch, dies, thus preventing Lindy 
from pursuing her education and breaking the cycle of poverty. Yeah. And, you know, there's, there's in this, this play, right. I think that that idea is also, there's something interesting about the generational responsibility that happened. Like it falls automatically on Lindy, right. To, to, to step into that mother role and care for her, her siblings. Right. So like there's, already this gendered expectation around parenting that is placed onto her and not I don't like not once has Lindy really ever expressed (laughs) the desire to be a mother I mean what we get is a very ambitious um young woman who wants to go to school and like you said and um receive this education and and have other sort of career ambitions for her life that are not inclusive at least that we get in this play which is only like five pages right um, around like education and what she wants to do with her life. And something in particular that is really important about this play, which is what really sparked our, our interest in talking about it on today's episode, is that it was published in Birth Control Review, which is a publication run by um, Margaret Sanger, the, who is the editor of that. And if you're not familiar with that name, Margaret Sanger, she is the founder of Planned Parenthood. Margaret Sanger was a huge proponent of, of birth control. And that's really important to say birth control because um, she actually was against abortion. And she thought that the ideas around birth control being a preventative method of getting pregnant versus having like ending your pregnancy, those are two different things. So she saw birth control as like the, the stop, right? Point before you have to get to that point. Obviously that is not a viewpoint that Leticia and I are are into on this podcast, but I think it's important to say that because that really, really comes up in this play, right? Around um, birth control specifically is, I think, what is um, being discussed in Day That Sit in Darkness. So we get this moment at the end of the play, right, with Melinda when she is dying, where Miss um, Shaw, who, what was Miss Shaw's relation to Melinda? The nurse, the nurse that would come visit. Yeah, she was the nurse. And, you know, with Melinda, she was expressing regret, right, around her life and having all these kids that she's not able to care for. And Michelle says, I, God is not punishing you, Melinda. You're punishing yourselves by having children every year, right? So, like, she starts to sort of push the blame of the system onto Melinda, even though Melinda virtually has no access and no ways to control it, right? And during that time, birth control was not like nationally legal, right? It wouldn't happen until like 1972. Again, we get this kind of matrix of domination that happens there, right? Where it's like Melinda's class position does not allow her to seek out something that would have been able to help her to um, to be able to control her 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 bodily freedom, right? Like she was because she didn't have access to something like birth control or even education about birth control, then it becomes this cycle that she's stuck into because she doesn't know how to, like, she doesn't know what her options are. You know, Ms. Shaw also says, my heart goes out to you, poor people that sit in darkness, having year after year children that you are physically too weak to bring to the world, children that you are unable not only to educate, but even to clothe and feed. Melinda, when I took my oath as a nurse, I swore to abide by the laws of the state and the law forbids me telling you what you have a right to know. I mean, dang, right? Yeah, wow. Like, I think it, I think Miss Shaw, even though she's sort of pushing the blame on Melinda, there's this beautiful moment where she also sort of recognizes the limitations of the state and like the state controlling the bodies of birthing people, specifically Melinda in this case, and being like, one, you, I, I can't tell you what you have a right to know, which, you know, I think we can all predict that it's access to reproductive freedom or health, birth control, specifically birth control, because of where the context in which this is being published, but also that the state also is implicated in your family being poor, right? So not only does the state prevent you 
from having access to birth control that can then prevent you from having so many kids, right? But then the state does not provide resources to help you clothe and feed your children, right? So Miss Shaw, I think, is is a great sort of mouthpiece for thinking of how complex and layered this conversation specifically around birth control is. I think that we see, you know, to bring back up what you offered us earlier, Jordan, about the gendered question of this, Melinda also has a son who is also 16, the same age as Lindy. He's into music. He wants to play guitar, right? But he doesn't have the same responsibilities as Lindy does, right? So when Melinda dies at the end of the play, Lindy takes up the sort of matriarch role. It is not Miles who, you know, says, well, you know, I'm going to help wash the clothes or I'm going to help, right? There's still a way that sort of this sort of gendered notion of like taking care of a family still exists within this paradigm that I thought was really interesting and intriguing because I think it raises sort of larger questions about about the nuclear family expectations, gender roles. And, you know, I I was curious, again, this is a very short play, uh, curious about like, okay, so Melinda dies, she's, Lindy is clearly going to step in as the matriarch role. Where does that leave Miles, right? The dad's not dead, right? But, you know, he's around the house. Is he going to sort of take on some of that uh, domestic labor? Absolutely. I mean, this is a, a lot in in such a small amount of time, right? I think that Mary Burrell is trying to broach those conversations around, like you said, the nuclear family, but also how that how that can't really work within black families, right? I mean, yes, Lindy is 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 kind of saddled with the the conver- with the the responsibility of being a mother and having to give up her her dreams in order to do that, but again, they're still in this cycle, right? They're still not able to kind of break out of it. And it just leaves you with these kind of questions, right? About, yeah, about the the, the tragedy of, of social systems not being put in place in order for you to like be able to make your own decisions about your life and your future. Like not only is, was I, I think the, the best thing about, about this script for me is like it's not just Melinda not having access to birth control that is a part of the conversation around reproductive justice but that Lindy is now a mother without wanting to be right like she didn't make the choice to be a mother her choice to to start a family or become a parent is absolutely decided for her because of the conditions of patriarchy of of classism and of like the lack of a social safety net around uh, welfare and you know other resources around um, healthcare right so I just say all that to say this is such an intriguing play and like far 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 <laughs> ahead of its time I would say around a lot of these conversations yeah definitely so and I think you actually create a great segue to our next play in the blood by Susan Laurie Parks that I'm sure you know if you are a fan critic or scholar of black theater that you know who Susan Laurie Parks is I don't know I don't know she's I don't know I'm Susan Laurie Parks I mean she's really this indie playwright I'm not sure if a lot of people have heard of her or really explored her work before so no I'm just kidding she's obviously a legend of black theater um first black woman to win a Pulitzer Prize for drama um, but this particular, I'm not even sure that we've actually really went into depth of one of her plays before on the podcast. No, it's actually our first time. Wow. That must be a record. <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we've done all the others, you know, August Wilson, Lorraine Hansberry. I mean, it was, it was time, but you know, we have In the Blood by Susan Laurie Parks premiered at the Public Theater, um, New York Shakespeare Festival in November of 1999. This is really the 90s when when Susan Laurie Parks, I feel like a lot of her plays were were dealing a lot with, with questions around Black womanhood because Venus was, what, 1996, right? So a couple of years prior to this where she, and I'm saying that there's like a linear thread between Venus and In the Blood, but I think that there were questions that she had around 
bodily autonomy that was happening um, in her mind that could create the conditions for making something like In the Blood. But In the Blood is a also a, a conversation, an adaptation, a sampling, a riffing, a signifying of The Scarlet Letter. Obviously, we're not going to rehash the entire plot of this story, but essentially all you need to know is that The Scarlet Letter is about a young woman named Hester Prynne, who, um, after having an affair with the, I believe, the reverend of her small town, is forced to uh, wear the uh, a scarlet A on her, her body to constantly shame her for, for the adultery that happened. And also, she becomes pregnant um, from that also. So, like, another way of sort of publicly shaming her for what they deem her to be a, they deem her to be a kind of, you know, impure woman, et cetera, et cetera. Just general patriarchy is what you need to get from this short story. Instead of, you know, in, I don't know, what is it, 18th century (laughs) um, early America, instead we have In the Blood taking place in the, the, the here and now, and obviously the characters are, well, the, the character of Hester is a Black woman and she has five children and all of them, I believe all of them have different fathers. So Leticia, tell us a little bit about In the Blood and I guess what you are seeing as its contribution to our, our, our topics for today. Yeah, I think first thing I want to know, I think that it's really important that Susan Laurie Parks places the play in the here and now right so it's it it places in a sort of current contemporary conversation so when I was rereading the play I was like man how would this play hit now that Roe v Wade has been overturned what was some of the larger conversations similar to to Mary Burrell's play we are uh with a family uh that is living in poverty uh for Hester and her children, it's much worse. They don't actually have a physical home. They live under a bridge. Uh, Hester is uneducated. So, you know, throughout the play, we sort of see, um, you know, Jabber, who is her oldest, trying to sort of teach her to spell. So she's learning her letters is how Susan Laurie Parks frames it. But she hasn't gotten past the letter A. A Again, hearkening back to the Scarlet, uh, scarlet Letters. Um and throughout the play there is this sort of there's a prologue and an epilogue and it it uses this common refrain that that i'm going to share with you all um i'm not in its entirety but just i think it's really important to set up sort of the framing of how we're sort of understanding hester and in this conversation of sort of reproductive freedom that i think is really central to understanding uh in the blood and it goes quote there she is who does she think she is the nerve of some people the nerve that some people have shouldn't have it if you can't afford it and you know she can't she don't got no skill except one just plain stupid if you ask me ain't no smart woman got five bastards and not a penny to her name something's got to be done to stop this sort of thing because i'll be damned if she gonna live off me end quote and again that's an abbreviated version of a much longer um prologue and epilogue but i think it frames this conversation of one that this chorus of people it just says all in the script right this chorus of people one is framing hester as having all these children as a problem framing her as someone who is living off of the 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 social systems that exist aka welfare which is a character in the play um and that their tax paying money is going to supporting her sort of like desire to have sex with multiple people and then three that something must be done about this loose woman Hester, right? And this is where we get into, I think, longer legacies and uh, of sterilization of Black women from from having children, um, of um, hysterectomies, forced hysterectomies, and I think what Susan Laurie Parks does brilliantly in this conversation is that she implicates every other character not you know not the children but every other character so we have the doctor um who's like i'm recommending to your caseworker that you get a hysterectomy we have the reverend uh who is the father of her 
youngest child who is sort of rising in his sort of pastoral career about to build him a church um but he doesn't want to support his his child with child support even though he's sort of preaching this sort of gospel of like it we need to help those that are uh, that are that are in need right at the same time he's sort of like the deadbeat dad (laughs) yeah he's a deadbeat he's a deadbeat dad um and then also asking for sexual favors from hester still um, then we have the welfare who chastides Hester for, you know, living on the streets, saying that they're providing services to her, but she's not actually taking advantage of them. Or she, you know, you can go to the shelter and she's like, well, I go to the shelter and my kids get touched, right? Like there's, there's a level, it's either, you know, do my children get sexually assaulted at the shelter or do we live under the bridge where I know that's not going to be an issue also the welfare lady who's uh, a black lady ends up having a threesome with esther and her husband also the doctor also prior had sex with esther so all of these characters have had sex with esther and then we finally have chili which is jabber's father who is the oldest child of hester who comes back his whole storyline he is he sees coming back to sort of find his first love um, and his child and actually really do right by Hester but after discovering that she has had four other children decides that wait a minute I didn't sign up for this I'm backing out again we see these conversations of being like oh the welfare has my name so they can garnish my wages oh they ain't gonna find me I changed my name right this sort of like distancing from any sort of responsibility and this drives Hester mad to a certain extent sense where she ends up killing her jabber her oldest gets imprisoned and then at the end of the play is forced to have a hysterectomy i believe she's also i mean i'm not sure if it's specified but she's incarcerated during that time right and so i think that also speaks to that larger legacy um, of forced sterilization specifically for women of color who are incarcerated especially black and indigenous women so you know that that wrestles with that really, really tough history as well. I also want to note that too, she has a friend, Aminga, Amiga Gringa, which I believe, okay, I don't know Spanish, but I'm pretty sure that just means white friend. <laughs> it is, it is, it, this character is white. She mentions it because her whole thing with S- Hester is that, you know, they had made, uh, she wants her to make a sex tape with her so that they can make a lot of money. Yeah. Right, exactly. The literal name amiga gringa <laughs> one thing that that uh susan laurie perks would do f- is give you a very literal meaning of something to be like i just want to let you know that i'm being very clear about <laughs> who this is i'm so, like when i was reading that i was like uh, not amiga gringa that's hilarious but but i mean what i think you're also something that's so so interesting is the the ways that like you said Susan Laurie Parks implicates everybody in the narrative every single person has failed Hester throughout this entire play in many different ways people who should have been helping her like welfare <laughs> welfare should have should be helping her right this is a social safety net put in place but instead screws her you know <laughs> like literally but also figuratively right and you know, with the reverend, right? She's supposed to be, you know, Susan Laurie Parks is indicting religious indoctrination here, right? Where it's like, you're supposed to be a Christian. You're supposed to be giving and generous. And like you said, he is on the outside projecting this image and probably even does some charity work through his ministry. But like personally and privately, he is absolutely taking advantage of this woman who is in a very precarious, extremely precarious position. Oftentimes the characters are also referring to like how titillated they are by Hester. That is such a repeated idea um, around this woman the entire time. It's just like, you know, I know I shouldn't because she's disgusting, but I just can't help myself because I'm just so, and like, it's just like this idea that she is available to everybody right and i think susan Lloyd parks is also again pointing to a larger history of how black women are read as as always sexually available to people no matter what right and i do think it's interesting that welfare is also represented as a black woman what do you what did you make of what do you make of that i mean obviously we've read this play so many times but like that always stops me in my tracks when i remember that welfare is supposed to be a black woman 
Yeah, I don't, you know, I'm, I'm speaking in draft, but I think that it creates, it implicates black women who work for sort of social systems. And particularly, I think it creates a class conversation, right? Because welfare has this, you know, as my grandma would say, good government job that, you know, it has a pension, your health care, you know, allows her to live somewhat a comfortable, comfortable lifestyle. And in her monologue where she's talking about her relationship with Hester, she keeps mentioning, you know, but I'm a wife, but I'm a wife. And I think that's how she sort of sees the difference between Hester and her and that class position of being like, well, you know, that is a particular black woman that is harmful to you know the perception of black women even though like you said she's also someone who's very titillated by by hester and her sexual encounter with her is something that she fondly sort of remembers it was like well it only happened once but she thoroughly enjoyed it alongside her husband right so i think it's meant to sort of create create a sort of class conversation about reproductive freedom about black women's positions on a class line on this issue potentially um and think about how uh, maybe middle class women frown upon or look down upon women black women who are poor and i think of like kathy cohen's politics of deviance right and i i think hester very much um could be read through that prism of like I am using my body, my physical body, to sort of like have sex with these people. One, because like I actually have some sort of affection so- towards towards some of these people, aka Chili, her first love, right? That sort of like perpetuated the cycle because he like disappeared on her. But then it becomes a sort of economic tool for her, or so she thinks, that can like sort of create a better life for herself and her children. So I, I, I want to make sure that we're not framing Hester as someone who is uh, deviant for deviant's sake, but actually using it as sort of a political system to sort of have some sort of mobility within her life. And also to say that doesn't mean that we should look down at Hester for having any sort of sexual appetite at all, right? And I, th- and I think that Susan Laurie Parks is very clear that like we're not going to like shame Hester for wanting to have sex. Right. And that's another thing, like, you know, oftentimes when people talk about um, low income or poor people, there is a, there is a lack of, of like, there's a understanding within like middle-class, upper-class and rich people that like poor people are not allowed to enjoy anything. And that can be sex, but that can also be other material items right um you know the the horrible conversations you see on twitter of like oh why is this purse poor person buying tennis shoes or why is this poor person you know using their ebt car to get a steak you know whatever it might be there's this idea that poor people are not allowed to experience pleasure and so it susan Lori parks creates this not just like a, a blanket political commentary around like welfare systems and and the lack of social safety nets, but also around a Black woman who, yeah, she's a mother, and yes, she is impoverished, and yes, you know, she um, is, is like, extremely down on her, on, on, on life because of the circumstances that have been created, but also she likes to have sex, and she does have sex, like, and she will, <laughs> and she can experience simultaneously this pleasure and this desire while also understanding that you know her positionality um is stopping her from accessing basic life need you know what i mean like it's not a a kind of binary conversation she's this so she doesn't get to do this and she's that so she doesn't get to do that but rather it's both and and i also wanted to point out too in those repeated refrain that you um read read at the beginning too when they say like can't uh shouldn't have had any if you can't afford them right so this is a repeated thing that happens also when we talk about reproductive justice is like well if you can't afford to have a baby then you shouldn't be having babies and like while i understand that the financial 
you know, the financial lift of having children is a reality, right? And that is often a, a reason why people may choose to end their pregnancies or may choose to not be parents or what have you. But it, it does kind of slide into like eugenics a little bit <laughs> when it's like, if you're poor, then you shouldn't be able to have kids, right? And that is a very, like I said, eugenics point that is, is brought up um, and is part of the reason why to, you know, someone like Margaret Sanger is a really, um, is a figure that is, has a very complex history when it comes to Black communities because of her views on eugenics and who should and shouldn't be able to have kids. Um, that's like when her views got into way extreme um, points. But, but I say all that to say is that Susan Lloyd Parks creates this really nuanced, I think, picture around I mean, it's, it's horrifying, right? Like so many things happen in this play are horrifying, but it's also an extremely nuanced picture around the search for bodily autonomy from Hester throughout the play. And ultimately, right, we see her succumbing to the system because of what it has created for her. But what we do get is like, I don't know, created this like sympathetic journey that we, we get on. It's like at every turn, you know, this woman has failed by literally everyone around her and except for her kids absolutely absolutely totally failed by by (laughs) everyone around her besides her kids who are also suffering throughout the play and I think you know if I know anything from my own sort of lived experience is that you know social systems for poor and working class people are insufficient and actually caring for them I think Susan Laurie Parks really captures all these things in place for Hester to be taken care of is actually just sort of another another harmful way to sort of remind her that she is less than in sort of the eyes of, you know, the state and to the many people around her. When that happens, it leads us to think about Kia Corthron's come down burning, right? So if these social systems are in place and they continue to fail us, what happens when sort of a community or a family takes, uh, takes, you know, reproductive health and freedom in their own hands and one, both of the sort of liberatory possibilities of it, um, but also the potential harm that can come from an in-home abortion because of the lack of resources and access. Before we sort of jump in to this play, Come Down Bernie by Kia Corthron, I just want to say the first time I read this play, Jordan, you were there. Um, it was in a class with our advisor, Dr. Phaedra Shatar Carpenter, and we were in her contemporary black drama class. And you, me, and Phaedra all started crying because one, this play is like deeply sad, but just also deeply beautiful and moving. The way that these women care for each, each other and the way the play ends. And it has one of my favorite lines of all time of like, you know, you you carried me, you carried me good. It was smooth ride, didn't feel one bump. But again, you all don't know what that means if you haven't read the play. So Jordan, can you give us a brief sort of insight into Come Down Burning. Yes. Um, Kia Corthorn also, I mean, we think she is a vastly understudied and underproduced playwright. So one, any artistic directors, literary managers, educators, anyone who's listening to this, please produce everything Kia Corthorn's ever written. Thank you. Um, secondly, this play, um, you know, was presented originally in January of 1993 um, as part of a workshop production at Long War Theater in uh, New Haven, Connecticut. So this play is a, the play is set in, in, in Appalachia. So Schooley and T are sisters. Schooley is, is physically disabled, um, but she does not have a wheel, wheelchair. She instead has a sort of makeshift, like a makeshift cart, right, that she uses to be able to roll her self around. Schoolie also lives like on a mountain. So she, because she does not have um, use of her legs, she cannot comfortably get up and down the mountain. So she is pretty much confined to this geographic space. Her sister T 
is a mother of, I'm not, how many children does he have? Two kids, right? And two kids, I believe. I believe uh, three, three kids, three kids that are living, two kids that had passed. T, so T is a mother to multiple children. Um, she's also currently pregnant again and is not necessarily in contact with any of the children's fathers. Schooly, in addition to being the kind of support to T's children, Schooly is also the, the community's abortion provider. Um, so she provides in-home abortions to folks in the community who need them because they, again, because they live in a mountain, <laughs> they do not have, there's not a Planned Parenthood on the mountain, right? So they don't have that kind of access to that care that they need. Bink, who was one of the characters of, of the play, is, is a schoolies, I believe, childhood friend, also requests an abortion from her, et cetera, et cetera. So another major character in the play is uh, T's daughter, Evie. Evie is struggling at school because her teacher is racist. <laughs> her teacher is, but her teacher is racist and is, is treating Evie badly. Evie tells Schooly and T about it. And T goes down there with the intention of being able to handle the situation, but is unable to really control it. And, and Evie is still receiving this kind of abuse from her teacher. Schooly is like, well, maybe if I go down there and I'm able to talk to her. And this is where that beautiful line that Leticia shared at the top of this segment uh, comes in is where T actually volunteers to carry Schooly down the mountain to the school so that Schooly can talk to Evie's teacher. And more things transpire <laughs> within the play, but eventually T, because she figures that she's unable to care for another child. Um, actually elects to give herself an in-home abortion because she doesn't want to have to depend on Schooly for everything anymore as she has been the entire time. And so she's like, look, I can do this one thing. I can do it because of her, I guess, inexperience with being able to provide this this, uh, service. She actually succumbs to her um, injuries or you know what happens in in this botched abortion the end of the play we get that beautiful moment between schoolie and t where schoolie remarks that t carrying her down the mountain was the smoothest ride you know there was no bumps and i honestly we just like yes we want to talk about reproductive how this this play talks about reproductive health care but just the love between these women in this play is such a driving point for why this play works so well, because you don't just get the, I mean, I've watched so many videos of Kia Corthorne talking about how much research she puts into her plays. I mean, she considers herself to be a political playwright. And if you read her other works, you will definitely see that. And she does all this research and all of these facts, but what theater does so well is that it pulls at your heart and you get all of the stuff about healthcare and, and reproductive justice and freedom, but you also just get this, this beautiful play about family and sisterhood and motherhood. I mean, it's just beautiful. Yeah, absolutely beautiful. And I think, you know, we have one, what we don't get perhaps in in the blood and in Mary Burrell's play is the connection between disability rights and reproductive rights as like interconnected. Ghoulie, who does not have use of her legs because she had an accident when she was a young child where she fell out of a tree with Bink. Uh, Bink was fine, but she became paralyzed, right? And then she had to sort of learn to navigate. They're also poor, working class, right? So this is not a family that necessarily has like a lot of money to afford a wheelchair. And I think even Schooly refrains at one point, like, I don't want no wheelchair. Like, I'm good with my cart. Uh, the set is described at like the, the refrigerator, uh, the stove, which is actually really just a hot plate, is all on the floor level, right? So like the environment, the lived environment, is one that is uh, made for Schooly to be able to navigate. The only place that she goes is across the street to the grocery store and back in her house. But Schooly is the main provider, right? Not only for tea and her children, but also for the community. She also does hair, 
right so we get these beautiful moments where she's doing the hair pink and the children she's looking after t's youngest who doesn't want to breastfeed anymore and rather takes the bottle which again creates some anxiety for t because she's really trying to force uh, her son to to breastfeed but he doesn't want it what kia corthron does so well like you said is like creating this community of care for one another even in the tension that clearly exists between all the different characters right t's not happy that she has to rely on schoolie to go to the school a second time to make sure that her daughter is going to be okay and not get uh you know punished by the teacher for mentioning that the teacher scratched her after grabbing her but at the at the end of the play we get this beautiful moment where we see them we see sort of the sisterhood, this level of care, this level of love for one another, and also just like T knowing that her children will be looked after by Schoolie, and both the sort of power of Schoolie, who does perform an abortion during the play successfully, right, and has for a long period of time, because like, oh, you've done this for me before, you know, everything's gonna be good, you know, it, it's safe, you know, I'm doing quote quotes, because you all can't see that, right, it's it's relatively safe, because Schoolie has a level of sort of knowledge that makes it safe, but T, who does not have sort of this sort of long, <laughs> longer sort of knowledge, even though sometimes she assists Schoolie, it becomes dangerous, right, and I think, in our contemporary conversation, this is something that we have to think about now, now that Roe v. Wade is overturned, right? Um, people don't stop getting abortions just because you tell them they can't get abortions. Yeah, I was just, yeah, I was going to say, like, it, it opens up the conversation that's already existed even when Roe v. Wade was in place around access, right? Access is not equitable. Even with the federal protections around abortion care, it didn't mean that people were able to like go to clinics, right? So Roe v. Wade, right, was this, was um, was a court decision made in 1973. This play came out in 1993. So, you know, Kia Cawthorn probably wrote this at some point in the years prior to that. And even within that conversation, right, it's not like, again, like I said earlier, it's not like they could just go to Planned Parenthood, right? They don't have anything that's probably near them being where they are geographically located. And that's something that a lot of reproductive justice scholars and activists have pointed out is that even with Roe v. Wade, there was not equitable access to abortions for, for people who needed them. So if you're living somewhere like Appalachia or you're living like in the middle of nowhere in a, in a rural part of the, of the state, you are not automatically, just because abortion may be legal, the nearest clinic may be five hours away. So you have to drive there to do that work and you have to take off work and can you afford to take off work and who's going to watch your other kids? Because statistically speaking, people who seek abortions already have children. I mean, just, uh, I don't want to get on the, the, the soapbox here, but I think that Kia Corthorne's play is already pointing to the inequitable access. I mean, this was a play that was written when Roe v. Wade was still the law of the land. And so but even within that, it didn't mean that everyone was guaranteed the same amount of protection or the same amount of access, even if they were federally protected to be able to seek one. So like you said, it becomes a sort of self-determination of the people in this community that's like, well, we just have to take matters into our own hands. And unfortunately, that does result in someone like T because of that lack of experience, right, having to, you know, what happens to her is just absolutely tragic. And at no point either is Schoolie ever made to feel bad or as an inspiration for being, for having a disability, right? Like she, her disability is a fact of her life. It is not something that is, you know, hyper spectacularized in a way, you know, that, that um, disabled characters are represented within a lot of spaces. And so, I really appreciate the way that like Schoolie is characterized. I mean, she is by far <laughs> the 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 character that is taking on the most in this play. Yeah, definitely. And and I think your your comment about access is is critically important, right? Even with something like Roe v. Wade, it had its limitations um, geographically and in other you know in other ways. And I think 
That gets us to something like Abortion Road Trip by Rachel Lynette. A play, right, I was unfamiliar with, but that you brought to my attention as something that we should look at for this episode is one sort of a more contemporary example of a play that's been recently written about reproductive uh, freedom and health. And also one, I, I would argue most explicitly about abortion itself. Can you tell us a bit about Abortion Road Trip? Yeah, uh, Rachel Annette's a playwright that I, you know, came into, I can't remember how exactly I came to know her work, but um, I, I have seen a couple of readings of her plays. A friend of mine, E.B. Owolabi, um, directed a, a reading for her that I, I got to see, I think maybe a year ago or so. So I'm really intrigued by her work. And I remember coming across Abortion Road Trip because of my own interest in, in seeing how abortion is represented within theater, um, it, long before this episode and long before the conversation about Roe v. Wade happened, I was really interested in this. And I, and I came across this play and, um, and it, the production we saw happen in 2017, I believe the play was also written around that time. Um, and we, we saw a production by Theater Prometheus, which is a local uh, theater company that actually Leticia and I um, got to do a little bit of work with last year, um, actually around, <laughs> around talking about, I think one of the playwrights we talked about in this episode, Mary Burrell. And so Theater Prometheus is a local DC theater company that focuses on works by marginalized theater artists. And in this play, which features three women, literally going on an abortion road trip, as the title says. So we have Minnie and Lexa, who are sisters, um, who enlist the um, help of the driver, whose name we've never know throughout the, the play, on a trip from San Antonio, Texas to New Mexico in order for Lexa to get an abortion. And while on this journey, they each discuss their emotional baggage that comes from um, I mean, just existing as a person in the world, um, but specifically related that we find out, spoiler alert, <laughs> that each one of them has had an abortion or Lex is on the process of, of getting one, but we find out that Minnie has had one and also the driver has also had one. And so, yeah, we, this, this play again, like you said, is our, is absolutely our most contemporary example of this. It's still prior to the overturning of Roe v. Wade, but it's undoubtedly extremely relevant to the conversations that's happening. We get a lot here. <laughs> we get a lot here. <laughs> we definitely get a lot here. And I think what perhaps makes this play critically different besides just like time period <laughs> of, of the play um, is that this I think is firmly a comedy. Like um, it really makes, I, I don't wanna say makes light of, but it has a lightness to this sort of conversation around reproductive re freedom and specifically abortion that I think invites people to have the conversation, right? And we have characters in the play that are firmly against abortion. Um, the best friend of Lexa and the girlfriend of Minnie. Minnie is uh, a black character and Lexa. As far as we know, in terms of this production, since we haven't seen the script, Minnie and Lexa have this relationship with Quinn, um, who is sort of the mouthpiece for sort of pro pro life. I would say I would call them anti-abortion. <laughs> yes, and yes, that's actually I yes mean what we say, say what we mean. Shout out Dr. Phaedra Star Carpenter. Anti-abortion, um, which is interesting that Quinn is also a lesbian. So I think that was a really interesting, compelling choice to make the, the face of sort of anti-abortion a lesbian white character, at least for this production, that I think was really compelling. And also, I think it's really masterful, masterful how Lynette creates these sort of three different experiences of abortion. So Minnie is sexually assaulted. Lexa just had, you know, it's sort of an accident with her boyfriend. And then the driver is an alcoholic who got really drunk and was slept a couple times with their, their co-worker uh, and ended up getting pregnant. 
it's also important to note that the driver is uh, also a lesbian who is married to a woman um, and their uh, alcoholism also causes rifts within their relationship to their then girlfriend but now wife when we enter the play that I think really gives us a really dynamic view of the different reasons and different choices and different circumstances that can lead people to deciding to get an abortion. Yeah, I think actually that is the most compelling part of this play for me is that, again, a lot of the conversation around abortion can sometimes paint it as, and and even with the other plays we've discussed, like it can also paint it as this kind of moral decision or as if there is, there's only a couple of justified reasons to seek an abortion and anything else is frivolous or, you know, not not good or makes you a bad person. And we see this these conversations happen in the play, but what I love is that there, there is not necessarily a moral judgment as to whose reason is the most compelling reason to get an abortion, right? So, you know, again, in the national conversation, I see people who are even, who would say that they are pro-choice, um, will say like, but nobody wants, really wants an abortion. Nobody really wants that. But like, you have to get it sometimes. And the thing that I think this play does well, and I think the driver actually says at some point, is like, you actually don't need a reason. Like, it doesn't need to be justified. If you want one or need one, you should be able to get one. That's really the end of the story. Um, and And so, like you said, there's these very different situations in which all of these, um, women in this women in this play, but you know, people in general find themselves pregnant and wanting to end their pregnancy for whatever reason they want to, right? Not necessarily only because it happened in something that's horrific, but because the person wanted to, and it is their body and and their choice to do so. Um, I also think that, like you said because two of the three characters that we are following are queer, I think that there's something very compelling to me about how queerness enters the conversation. In particular, the character of Quinn (laughs) being our kind of anti-abortion mouthpiece is a a fascinating choice because, you know, I think contemporarily we are starting to expand our language around how we discuss reproductive justice and freedom. And a lot of that conversation in, includes how we how we talk about the multiple <laughs> genders that are being affected by um by this by the restriction of abortion rights or abortion care in, in the United States and, and globally. And so I think again, what this what abortion road trip also really creates is that is the ever expanding ideas around who could get pregnant, the type of bodies that can get pregnant, and also that it doesn't have to be dire circumstances, right? So like we look at these other plays that we've talked about, They That Sit in Darkness, Come Down Burning, In the Blood, These are hyper-spectacularized events to where these women find themselves in situations where they either should have been able to access reproductive care or need to seek out reproductive care versus abortion road trip, it's pretty quotidian, right? Like it treats abortion as this kind of quotidian experience that a lot of people have, right? And even the idea that three of all three of them either need, either have gotten or are getting an abortion is a really important point because it's like that saying that's going around for people in support of abortion care, which is like, Everyone knows everyone knows someone who's had an abortion, right? Like <laughs> it's normal. Yeah, I think that's a really important aspect of what abortion road trip is bringing to this sort of conversation and also I think reflecting reflecting at least in my circles and I, you know, probably your circles Jordan, you know, like you said the quotidianness of uh someone having or knowing someone who has had an abortion right and I, and I, I really think this play captures this um, I think that all of these four plays do a great one illustrate how sort of reproductive freedom and health has been a constant conversation within 
uh, theater, but also black theater at large, right? This is not a new conversation that theater is just now entering, uh, but we actually see a sort of lineage and a legacy of where this is actually a primary concern of, of black playwrights. Um, and I think, uh, you know, it was really important and enlightening for me to even revisit these plays with the sort of specific focus of thinking about reproductive freedom and health as a primary concern of these works, right? There's other things that happens in them that you, you know, we could talk about, but that this is a core element of all the plays that we discussed today. And we highly, highly recommend it to all of our listeners to revisit these plays if you've already read them. Um, if you only read one or you, and you haven't heard of it, the others, please, please, please support these playwrights, teach their work, um, read these plays, see these plays if they go up um, near you. But, you know, I, I really enjoyed our conversation of thinking about these plays. And yeah. So you already know we would never leave you all in the dust when it comes to material. We want you to um, have this conversation. Before we get into that, I just want to emphatically say, um, please support reproductive justice activists in your area. Please donate to your local abortion fund and just keep abreast of the national conversation around what's happening with reproductive freedom. We on Daughters of Lorraine unequivocally support anyone's right to choose what happens to their bodies. And um, and I would be remiss if, if I did not um, encourage that on the podcast. Um, but we have a couple of other plays that we would like you all to consider. Uh, one of those is Fucking A by Susan Laurie Parks, which is the sister play to In the Blood. It just continues on in this conversation about this world. Please, please read it. And the other is Behind the Sheet by Charlie Yvonne Simpson. Behind the Sheet talks about the black women who were exploited um, in the name of the um, modern gynecology, right? So everything that we get from the speculum to, to other forms of a gynecological, gynecological care um, is because of the exploitation of black women and Charlie Yvonne Simpson's play explores that. So please, please, please read that. And then in lieu of, of critical material that focuses specifically on theater and performance, we thought we'd just provide you some resources to think about the intersections between um, Black liberation, Black feminism, and reproductive justice. So one such um, book is Reproductive Justice and Introduction by Loretta Ross and Ricky Solinger. Please read that. It is an, an extraordinary primer on the idea of reproductive justice and how it has developed throughout history, written by one of the greats and titans of that movement. And then the article, How Black Feminists Define Abortion Rights by Kianga Yamada Taylor and Supreme Court Ruling Overturning Abortion Reaffirms the Role of Reproductive Justice in Black Liberation by Paris Hatcher. Again, please continue to have the conversations around reproductive justice and freedom in your life and support the work of people on the ground who are organizing to make sure that everyone gets the care and access that they need. I think that is a great note to finish on. Thank you again for joining us for another episode of your favorite podcast, Daughters of Lorraine. We know that this was not as fun of a topic, um, but we are we find it important to continue to engage in the conversation because knowledge is power. <laughs> All right. Talk to y'all next time. This has been another episode of Daughters of Lorraine. We're your hosts, Leticia Ridley and Jordan Ely. On our next episode, we're discussing the life and legacy of solo performer and playwright Robbie McCauley. In the meantime, if you're looking to connect with us, please follow us on Twitter at D-O-Lorraine-Pod, P-O-D. You can also email us at daughtersoflorraine at gmail.com for further contact. The Daughters of Lorraine podcast is supported by HowlRound Theatre Commons, a free and open platform for theater makers worldwide. It's available on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and HowlRound.com. If you are looking for the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify, you will want to search and subscribe to HowlRound Podcast. If you loved this podcast, post a rating and write a review on those platforms. 
This helps other people find us. You can also find a transcript for this episode along with a lot of other progressive and disruptive content on HowlRound.com. Have an idea for an exciting podcast, essay, or TV event the theater community needs to hear? Visit HowlRound.com and submit your ideas to the comments. Oh, no, 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 no,